Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since the Oscars are right around the corner at the time of this recording, we wanted to look at women directors because there has been a lot of conversation this Oscar season and in just recent Oscar seasons in general about women directors. And we've talked about them before on the podcast, but we haven't looked at the pioneering female directors of Hollywood. Yeah, this was a, a great chance to look at where we are today, but also where we've come from. And we have uncovered some, no, I say we have uncovered, like we're some film historians, but we have enjoyed reading others' discoveries of the fascinating women who contributed so much to the development of the film industry. And their subsequent erasure mm-hmm. from film history up until recent decades decades also says a lot about where we are today in terms of women behind the camera. And first off, we're going to give you a, a quick snapshot of exactly where we are. And spoiler alert, it's not it's not great. It's not fantastic. There's a reason why there's so much conversation about where are the women directors? Where are the Oscar nods for female directors? And uh, the first source we're going to cite is from the 2014 annual celluloid ceiling report released by Dr. Martha Lausen, who's the executive director of the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film at San Diego State University. Yeah, so basically the overall amount of women working in the film industry today is slightly lower than the 1998 level, which is a little disheartening. And when you look at the women who are actually directors out of that group, women made up just 6% of all directors working on the 2013 top grossing films. And that's actually a 3% drop from just 2012. And we have some more stats to throw at you because there has been a lot of attention on this, on women in the film industry in general, but also women making films, not just women who are starring in films, although that's obviously important as well. And there was some study data that came out of the University of Southern California looking at Sundance films in particular. And the Sundance Festival is known for uh, providing a launching pad, not only for female filmmakers, but also filmmakers of color. So it's it's a really important platform. Um, but even there, you see pretty wide gender gaps. Yeah, so they looked at Sundance films that were released between the year the year 2000. The year 2000. Exactly. I had to stop myself from singing. And, uh, and 2012. Not that there's anything wrong with singing. The year 2012. I, I narrate everything I do at home in a sing song, which is, I'm sure, obnoxious for my boyfriend. It's kinda, you're kind of like Snow White. <laughs> Except no birds come and make dresses for me. Ugh. Um, but okay, so they found that, uh, films directed by women feature more women in all roles. There was a 20% increase in women working on a narrative film during that time, 2000 to 2012. And in that same time block, a 24% increase of women working on documentaries. But nonetheless, just 23.9% of the films looked at in that Sundance study were directed by women. And this is also notable, too, that from 2002 to 2012, 
Women made up only 4.4% of directors in the top 100 box office films each year. And looking at who's making those top grossing films is also relevant because when it comes to making a film in Hollywood, the people who will finance that film want to know is this going to make money? Right. Yeah, it, money is the is the main driver. If it's going to make money, we don't care what you look like. We want to make a lot of money. And so if we look at narrative films, that's the storytelling films. It's basically anything that's not a documentary. It's Titanic. It's Twilight. It's <laughs> it's my best friend's wedding. All the films we love. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. So if we look at those narrative films of the past decade, we find that 41 women have made films in the top 100 released films every year. Versus 625 men. They also found that there are 15.24 male directors for each one female director. So there's a there's a quarter of a guy hanging out. Yeah, he's like, hey, I'm (laughs) 0.24 over here. I'm shins. (laughs) That's all I am. And just a pair of shins sitting in one of those (laughs) folding chairs that directors get. (laughs) Are the feet attached? Quiet on the set. (laughs) That's the shins talking. So the question, obviously, then, is why is that? Why are there 15 men and a pair of shins for (laughs) every entire female body making films or directing films, we should say? And there's been a lot of investigation into this in mainstream media outlets such as The New York Times, Vanity Fair, Variety, uh, pretty much any media outlet that has the interest in the entertainment industry has asked this question. And the resounding theme is, well, mm, old boys club style networking, which helps. But also it is that money factor. Yeah, there was this interesting quote from producer Cassian Elwes to The New York Times who brought up something that I honestly hadn't thought of. I understood the whole money thing, that films and producers follow the money, what will be profitable. But Elwes said that the tricky part is that foreign sales company provide the pre-sale estimates for the value of a movie in territories outside of the United States. And so it's not necessarily financiers here in the U.S. who are struggling with the idea of a female director or a producer, for that matter. It's people who are just not used to considering women as action film directors, for example, in such a male-dominated world at large. So if you wonder, for instance, why there have been uh, so many Transformers (laughs) movies made, it's because those big Michael Bay action films translate easily to foreign screens. It's it's almost like like a a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, well... Is there violence? Is there are there explosions? Is there you know a token attractive woman? Then perfect. Really, really simple dialogue. Yeah, we'll buy that. But the question then you have to ask, and this is a question for another podcast, is well, are women just not being offered those kinds of directorial roles? Do women not want to make action movies, or do we make different kinds of movies that just are aren't as appealing to global audiences? Uh, who knows? Who's to say? But side note, fortunately, we do have a group like Game Changer Films, which exclusively finances, according to their website, narrative features directed by women. And a lot of those have gone on to places like Sundance to rave reviews. And it's interesting, too, to see how A-list actresses are also getting in on that, creating their own production company specifically to finance 
films by women. Uh, Reese Witherspoon has done this. Selma Hayek. Uh, Angelina Jolie has gotten into directorial roles. I think Sandra Bullock has also created her own production company. So clearly action is being taken in Hollywood to address this issue. But mm-hmm. still, I mean, one for every 15.24 is a pretty staggering statistic. Yeah. And when you look back at the history of film, where it originated, I mean, we have some pretty fascinating Pretty fascinating characters behind the camera that have essentially been lost to history, which is so unfortunate. And so I'm really glad, I'm super glad that we're doing this this podcast because not only do we want our listeners to be aware of these women, but it's totally self-serving altruism because I'm just fascinated to read this stuff. Yeah, to go back to that narrative film statistic we cited uh, really quickly in terms of uh, 41 women making films out of the top 100 released every year over the past decade versus 625 men. Think of that gender gap and the fact that the person who invented narrative film was a woman. Yeah. Oh, such a great character. This is Alice Guy Blaché. She's history's first female director, and she has an incredible resume. She was pretty much, we assume, the only female director at all, period, from 1896 to 1906. And this woman wrote, directed, or produced more than a thousand films, mostly short single reel films, including the wonderfully titled In the Year 2000 When Women Are in Charge. Ooh. Alice. Well, sorry, Alice. Uh, it didn't happen. Yeah, that's like uh, Back to the Future 2 when they just assume that everybody in 2015 is going to have hoverboards. Yeah. It's not a thing. It didn't happen. Man. Here we are in 2015. I'm so disappointed where, for so many reasons. Where are the hoverboards? And on top of that, she made the first film with an all African-American cast called A Fool and His Money, which we'll talk about in a minute. And she also innovated a number of techniques. Not only did she think, hmm, you know what? This newfangled film thing could be a great way to tell stories, hence the invention of narrative film. She also used synchronized sound way before the invention of talkies. She also used deep focused photography, double exposure, split screen, the mirror gag, color film, and also emphasized natural acting style. Because when you think back to silent films, it was usually, you know, all these big exaggerated gestures. But she always told her actors be natural. And that's mm-hmm. actually the title of a forthcoming documentary about her. Right. I think that's fascinating because, yeah, even I feel like even if you watch movies from the 30s and 40s, oh, yeah. they're still not wooden, but just as if they're projecting because they're on stage. There's still like that unnatural quality to some films from back then. But, yes, yeah, she really emphasized that, no, we're we're depicting real life in this story. And so I want you to be natural. And you can see that difference on screen and because you can watch clips from her films. You know, I mean, a lot of them are single reel. So you can see the whole thing on YouTube. And it's a, a stark difference between these more natural looking characters and someone who's almost vaudevillian mm-hmm. on camera. Um, but her film studio, the Solax Company, was the largest pre-Hollywood production house of its kind. And that's quoting uh, the Be Natural documentary trailer. And they were <laughs> churning out two to three films per week. Granted, these were not feature length films. They were shorter 
single real films, but still, still, that's a lot of that's a lot of films. Yeah. Well, so let's look back at her career where it started. Back in 1894, after she graduated high school, she became a secretary for Leon Goumont of Goumont Studios in Paris, thanks to a tip from her stenography professor. And very significantly, it was through that job that she was present for an 1895 demonstration of the Lumiere Brothers motion picture projector. They basically were the first cinematographer. They filmed uh, factory workers leaving a factory for the day. Um, so they weren't doing the narrative style film. They basically helped create the first documentary. And so Guy, though, being uh, quite the smarty pants at this point, immediately saw the narrative potential for this medium. She wrote in her memoirs, quote, gathering my courage, I timidly proposed to Goumont that I write one or two little scenes and have a few friends perform in them. And listen up here. She said, if the future development of motion pictures had been foreseen at this time, I should never have obtained his consent. My youth, my inexperience, my sex all conspired against me. And Goumont responded, oh, what a silly girlish thing that you would want to do. Fine. Take take this equipment. Make your little film. How interesting, though, that this echoes like a major theme in our podcast where we've talked about various industries, various professions where women, maybe they're not encouraged to participate, but they're certainly not discouraged from participating when it is still considered a practice of passion or art or just various, you know, being being interested in something. Once it becomes professionalized or unionized or whatever, and there is actual money to be made and there are higher stakes, that's all of a sudden when you're biological sex becomes a problem. Yeah, and she was only 23 when this light bulb went off in her head. And so in 1896, she made this short film called The Cabbage Fairy, which is arguably the first narrative film. And it was opposed to films at the time that were more uh, intent on capturing real life documentary style. Um, There was a lot of Almost a scientific focus on the use of film at the time to study motion, uh, to see how the human body moved. There's some interesting intersection at this time, actually, between the development of film and its intended use and the developing sciences as well. And so Guy had such a revolutionary vision for this. And uh, I watched The Cabbage Fairy and because uh, it's, it's really short and it's essentially it's like cabbage patch dolls yeah. like it's a well-dressed woman picking up these babies from cabbages and they're they're live babies <laughs> it's not prop babies <laughs> and the only thing i was just a little bit in horror while i was watching cuz these babies are just screaming their heads off i mean you can't hear it luckily obviously. yeah luckily silent it's film it's a silent film <laughs> But I just wonder where she got all those volunteer babies. That's funny. Yeah, how do you put an ad for that in the paper? I know. No, I pro- we're just putting them in cabbage. It's, it's fine. Fi- it's fine. They'll be fine. But speaking to the Daily Beast, Allison McMahon really hammered home the significance. She said that uh, Guy Blachet understood that telling a narrative story in film was going to require following the perspective of a singular character. And it took a good 10 years for other filmmakers to figure out exactly what she did. Yeah, and speaking of McMahon, she is also working on the Be Natural documentary. But if you want to learn more about Guy Blachet, before that comes out, uh, she wrote a book all about her that you can check out, Alice Guy Blachet, Lost Visionary of the Cinema. 
Um, so she's figured out she's 23. She's made this film and inadvertently made history. Then let's fast forward a little bit to 1906 when she marries an English cameraman, Herbert Blachet, which is where the Blachet comes from. And Guy Blachet. Yeah. So then they moved to the U.S. to run Goumont's American office. But due to a bunch of different factors that were going on at the time, Goumont's whole business stateside wasn't doing so well. So in 1910, Guy Blachet starts up the Solax Company, and she becomes, therefore, the first woman to ever run her own studio. Yeah, so she writes, directs, and otherwise contributes to the production of over 700 films, including the 1913 film House Divided, which is possibly the first American film with a detailed plot. And both House Divided and another one of her films, Matrimony's Speed Limit, highlight equal partnership within marriage. And she actually also... Made a couple of action films, not anything like Transformers, but action films of the time with women positioned as the heroes. And so she wasn't afraid to put women front and center in her own films. So even back then, in the early days of cinema, there's still that existing pattern we see today in terms of women behind the camera tending to put more dynamic women in front of the camera. Right. But it's interesting because a lot of sources point out that around this time, she does start putting out a lot of movies that have a general theme about marriage. And then in 1922, she and Herbert divorce. Oh, Herbert. Herbert. He ends up remarrying, uh, moves back out west or something. He's lost. We don't, we don't know what Herbert's doing. But, uh, Guy moves back to France with her daughter Simone. And she really struggled to maintain her livelihood against the rise of this corporate film industry. And I mean, here we see again that whole pattern of when it's just for art, when it's art for art's sake or when it's not professionalized. Hey, women, sure, do whatever you want. Who cares? The minute that it's professionalized and it's corporate and there's money to be made. Oh, you're a woman. We don't want you. Get out of here. Even when you've already made a thousand films, Mm -hmm. which is kind of wild. And it makes me wonder, though. Whether the divorce from Herbert and not having a guy by her side perhaps made it more difficult for her to make that transition back to France, because when she was running the Solax company, yes, she was the head honcho Mm -hmm. and everything went through her. But at the same time, I have a feeling that there were probably some businessmen uh, in the industry who liked to see a dude next to her rather Mm -hmm. than just taking orders from a woman. Yeah, it could be. But I mean, regardless, after this point, she essentially gets erased from history. I mean, she did go back to France. Like we said, she wrote articles about films. She taught about films. So it's not like she completely sank into the ground. She was still around. It's just that she couldn't maintain that position as a director anymore. Yeah. And not only was she erased from film history, almost symbolically, like she's it's only been in recent decades that we even know who she is, but her films, too, were destroyed just Mm -hmm. because of uh, the elements of them not being cared for properly. Um, There was a guy who just randomly found one of her films at an estate sale. I mean, it's uh, and with the, the Be Natural documentary, the filmmakers are ha- having to raise money in order to access and track down the film that's even still available, which is part of why I really want it to be made. And I want to see it so badly to see all of her or at least her work that's still 
in existence. Yeah, let that be a lesson to us all to take care when we go to estate sales. It's true. You never know what you'll find. So we've introduced you to the amazing Alice Guy Blachet, but we have to talk about this fascinating character that she mentored. So, you know, just never hurts to hammer home the importance of having a mentor in your chosen field. But this brings us to Lois Weber, who also, she herself, made a bunch of film history. Weber was the first American woman to direct a feature-length film, and she, at the time, was the leading female director, screenwriter, in early Hollywood. She was also the first and only woman at the time elected to the Motion Pictures Directors Association and the first mayor of Universal City in California. Uh, and in 1921, Motion Picture Magazine, in an article about her, said, quote, When the history of the dramatic early development of motion pictures is written, Lois Weber will occupy a unique position. Yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? Well, unique in the sense that we are only just now learning about her. Right. And film historian Anthony Slide wrote that few men before or since have retained such absolute control over the films they've directed. And certainly no women directors have achieved the all embracing, powerful status once held by Lois Weber. So what is the deal? What's the deal with Lois Weber? Well, in 1897, she left home to become an opera singer. And while touring with a scene group, she met her future husband, who is an actor and stage manager, Wendell Phillips Smalley, who was also a bit of a feminist because he was all like, listen, Lois Weber, I love you. Keep your maiden name. I'm down with that. Let's form a partnership and take over the world. That's right. And it's worth noting that his feminism didn't come out of just nowhere. He's a descendant of the human rights pioneer Wendell Phillips, who was a contemporary of Lucy Stone. Ah, Lucy Stone, famous for keeping her last name. Indeedly do. And so he was very well influenced in his life. And so in 1904, she marries Smalley. And it's something that actually really worked in their favor creatively, rather than like we see a lot of times when a husband and wife come together, the wife is often forced to leave the professional world. That only really made them stronger. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to echo a pattern that we saw with Alice Gee and Herbert Blachey. Mm-hmm. And Weber began working at Gumon Studios as an actress, and that's where she met Guy Blachey. I said before the break, uh, mistakenly, that it was while uh, Guy Blachey was running Solex Company. It was actually earlier than that, during the Gumon Studios days. And under Guy Blachey's mentorship, Weber expanded her skill set to include movie making behind the camera, learning writing, directing and producing. Yeah. And so she takes these new skills, these new interests, and she and her husband start making shorts and features together under the production billing The Smallies for a whole bunch of production companies. And together in 1912, they moved to Los Angeles to get in on all of that fancy Hollywood action. And in 1914, she makes History. She becomes the first American woman to direct a full-length feature, The Merchant of Venice. And then in 1917, she strikes out on her own with Lois Weber Productions, a move that would make her the highest-paid Hollywood director at the time, because she was working for herself. That's right. And that's another theme that we see with all three of the women that we're going to talk about in this episode, where at some point they make the turn and say, you know what, I'm going independent. 
I'm Which doing this. Is no different from the women you cited at the top of the podcast who have to car still have to carve out their own path, their own niche if they're going to pursue this particular path. And her films weren't just easy breezy fluff either. No, they definitely tackled a lot of social issues and despite the threat of censorship for some of them, they helped film become recognized as a true art form and not just frivolous entertainment. Yeah, so one of her most famous films from 1915 is Hypocrites, and it tackles religion and sexuality and features full nudity. Um, essentially, it's a, a naked woman on screen, although she's transparent, so you can't really see all of her nudity mm-hmm. in detail. Um, but she plays the, she sort of symbolizes truth and she frolics about. And some people were horrified by Mm -hmm. hypocrites because of the nudity and also attacking religion in such a direct way. But other people praised it. They thought that it was, you know, quite an ambitious artistic endeavor that paid off. Yeah. And this led to her challenging a lot of the censorship efforts that she faced as a result. And her very modern response to it was that hypocrites is not a slap at any church or creed. It's a slap at hypocrites. And its effectiveness is shown by the outcry amongst those it hits hardest to have the film stopped. And it's notable, too, that this ties directly into her upbringing because her family was very religious and very active in evangelizing. And so she saw film as a way to impart moral truths and deal with social issues in a novel way, in the same way that Alice Guy Blachet thought of, hey, let's use film a little bit differently than just reflecting day-to-day life or science or motion studies. Interesting what happens when you get people with different perspectives into fields, various fields and industries. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so she also dealt with the issue of capital punishment in The People versus John Doe from 1916 and drug abuse in Hop, The Devil's Brew. The Devil's Brew. Also from 1916. She was not a slacker of any kind. And in 1916 and 17, she tackles contraception with not one, but two films, Where Are My Children and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And The Hand That Rocks the Cradle was notable because this was happening right after Margaret Sanger was put on trial for obscenity. So she was not shy in talking about things that were quite hot button issues. I mean, back then, but even today. Right. Well, and she also wasn't afraid to sort of risk her position because you have to keep in mind at the time that she's producing these very controversial films, she's also the highest paid director, period, not highest paid female director. So she's riding pretty high right now. Yeah. And she put herself out there, especially in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, because she not only wrote and directed it, she also starred in it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, we also need to mention Shoes, which came out in 1916 as well, which some people think is her best film. It tackled poverty and also looking at something that I had never thought of before, which was the contemporary plight of shop girls mm. who were usually underpaid, but also immersed in this new and growing consumer culture, um, which is something that made me want to possibly do a podcast on women in retail Mm -hmm. in the future. Um, And in 1916, this very prolific year, apparently, Motion Picture Stories magazine named her the greatest woman director. Yeah, and beyond just being a woman, she was routinely cited as being one of the best directors, period, around at the time. Unfortunately, she also hit problems like Guy Blachet post-divorce. Her film career kind of hit the skids, and she also was largely erased from popular film history. 
And it wasn't really until the 1970s, uh, with the work of feminist film scholars who sort of rediscovered her, that her legacy has uh, been recognized again. And no surprise that feminist film scholars would love her because, hello, she tackles so many issues. Yeah, but it was that push to uncover um, our amazing female predecessors in the film industry in the 1970s that also led to a lot of praise for the last woman that we're going to talk about today. Yeah, Dorothy Arzner was the first female director bigwig, essentially. She was the first member of the Directors Guild. Um, she was the only female director in Hollywood during the golden era of the studio system. So she is a very big deal. So the Women Film Pioneers Project at Columbia University talks about how Arzner's career spanned from 1919 to 1943, 15 years of which were spent as a director. And she remains the most prolific woman studio director in the history of American cinema. So let's look at how she got her start. It was definitely an interesting story because she grew up in Hollywood. She wasn't an outsider. But she was an outsider in the fact that she studied medicine originally at USC and was an ambulance driver for a little while in World War One. But then she visited a film studio, which turned her on to the idea of talkies, not to mention that her parents ran a cafe in Hollywood that was frequented by people in the industry. Yeah. So she ended up getting a studio job in Paramount as a typist, which led to a job as a screenwriter and then an editor, which was a common job for women back then. And then her big break came in 1922 with the film Blood and Sand, which she was editing because They were worried about going over budget, and she decided to use stock footage of a bullfighting scene, which ended up saving the studio a ton of money. There's that theme again, money. And she was so successful with this. I mean, she essentially saved this film that the director, James Cruz, took note and brought her on to write and edit other films of his. Yeah, and Arzner's pretty savvy when it comes to money. Um, I think she would do Sheryl Sandberg proud, or Sheryl Sandberg would do her proud. Um, in 1927, Arzner negotiated her way into a directorial position because she was able to leverage an offer from Columbia to direct into a promotion. And so her first film is Fashions for Women, which is funny, Because if you Google image her, which I highly recommend you do if you search for her, she dressed exclusively in men's style clothing. Yeah, she wore ties and suits and jodhpurs and oxfords and her hair was cut short. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a very handsomely dressed woman. And she was always intent on proving her competence because it was so widely publicized that she was the only woman at that level in Hollywood at the time. And it's important, too, to remember that this Hollywood that she's working in is leaps and bounds beyond the Hollywood that, say, Lois Weber was working in. Yeah, and so in 1929, she directs Paramount's first talkie, which I think is pretty interesting, The Wild Party. Although another source does say that Paramount's first talkie was Manhattan Cocktail, but it almost doesn't matter because both were directed by Arzner, and that one was in 1928. And so The Wild Party stars uh, film siren Clara Bow, 
And another significant aspect of this is that Arzner essentially invents the boom mic along the way. It was a mic on a fishing line. And it's pretty cool because when you think about the dawn of the talkie era, mics were stationary, meaning that you had previously energetic stars like Douglas Fairbanks or whomever who had been able to sort of bound around the screen with these large pantomime movements because it was silent. Who cares? Nobody needs to worry about microphones. But these stars then had to remain pretty still to kind of hang out near the stationary microphones. So Arzner's, you know, blowing up stuff all over the place, making all sorts of innovations. Boom mics. Boom. Indeed. And after 11 films with Paramount, she goes independent. And in the 1930s, she became the first female member of the Directors Guild, a labor group that today represents more than 15,000 directors and directorial support staff and counts women directors as 13.7% of its membership. And when she went independent, she was able to get really lucrative distribution deals because of the strong relationship and reputation that she had built for herself with Paramount, not only as a savvy filmmaker, but she also developed a reputation as a star maker. Yeah, she made stars out of Catherine Hepburn with the film Christopher Strong, Rosalind Russell with Craig's Wife, and Lucille Ball with Dance Girl Dance. And I was telling Kristen that I was Google image searching Dance Girl Dance because I love seeing these old pictures of Lucille Ball before she was I Love Lucy. Yeah, and she also had a close uh, film relationship with Joan Crawford as well. She directed her in a film called The Bride Wore Red. And the original trailer for it is fantastic uh, because, you know, it, it introduces the film, which is about this nightclub singer and she wears red and she seduces wealthy men. But then, of course, she falls in love with a not so wealthy guy, whatever. But at the end of the trailer, it says a woman's love story directed by Hollywood's only woman director. And it cuts to Arzner in one of her suits hanging out on set. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I, I thought it was so interesting that that even back then was a selling point for yeah. her films. But you do have to wonder from Arzner's perspective if she was like, oh, enough already. Enough. I'm just a director. I don't know. She looked pretty chill <laughs> hanging out in her in her suit being like, yeah, what? I am the only one. Pay me. Make it rain. <laughs> I'm sure she was saying that. Yes. all of the, uh, Definitely make it rain. Definitely. Well, so in 1943, she directs. Her last feature, First Comes Courage, and retires from Hollywood for health reasons. And also, partly, because after World War II, directorial jobs were super hard for women to get, and things have essentially stayed almost the same. Yeah, it really does seem that way. Um, but notably, she transitioned from making film to teaching film, similar to Alice Guy-Blachet, and she inspired filmmakers, including... A gentleman named Francis Ford Coppola, who would then inspire Sofia Coppola. So you can then trace Sofia Coppola all the way back to Alice Guy Blachet, because she mentored Lois Weber, which then leads to Arzner, Coppola, Coppola, lost in translation, done. <laughs> Love it. I love it. Yeah. And scholars have looked back at Arzner's career and her path and the way that she did things and have talked a lot about the way that she was able to 
do things and interpret stories so differently. This is coming from Teresa Geller in uh, on the website Senses of Cinema. And Geller's done a lot of research into Arzner. And she talks about how she often revised original source material to really emphasize the complexity of women's lives, to make them not only more sympathetic characters, but also just more real human people. And so not only were Arzner's script writers mostly women, but she also took characters that maybe weren't supposed to be so positive and turned them into someone who was real. So so if you take the play Craig's Wife, for instance, it's about a domineering wife and her put upon husband. And you're totally supposed to sympathize with this husband. She reworked it. She made the lead character complex and she made the story basically into a critique of the institution of marriage of the limits placed on women and she focuses on the wife's acknowledgement that she went into the marriage to attain security and she even plays the bitter old widow, widow next door who's played by billy burke who played glenda the good witch she plays her as just like a happy solo gardener, elderly lady who's just getting along alone just fine. And that was a, a general theme of her films is that not only did she portray women who were outside the bounds of heterosexual relationships with men as happy, but almost as like the better, healthier choice in life. Yeah, there's been a lot of investigation into her exploration of the male gaze and also flipping that to the female gaze, lesbian undertones in some of her films as well, because uh, Arzner had a long-term relationship with, I believe it was one of her choreographers that she worked with. Um, and for all of these reasons, feminist film scholars in the 1970s in particular really, I mean, just were almost magnetically drawn to her body of work because she's such a complex person to begin with, especially Mm -hmm. considering the context of the time and Hollywood at the time, um, but also how perhaps her queer identity influences how she makes film. So I know that I am now loading up my Netflix queue with Arzner films, because I want to see this stuff. Yeah. Personally, I, w- I really want to see Craig's wife mm-hmm. in particular, because I love Rosalind Russell. and would be so curious to see her in this role. Um, and just to quote Geller once more, she said, for much of Arzner's work, sexuality stands as a threat to women's community. Arzner's film exposes that strain of the heterosexual bargain that shackles women. Yeah, she often portrays if there are any relationships on screen that are between women, those are the safe, healthy, strong relationships that free women up to do what they truly want to do. It's almost like any time she depicts marriage or relationships or anything between men and women, that that is almost cited as the downfall of the female character. But interestingly, though, in talking about her experience at the time in Hollywood, she said once, no one gave me trouble because I was a woman. Men were more helpful than women. And and it seems like just based on how she talks about getting into film and how she develops her career, that she possessed so much confidence. I mean, and I guess that she had to because she was an outsider in multiple ways. Yeah. And she does. She did have the quote that women's dramatic sense is invaluable to the motion picture industry. So she obviously, obviously felt that women like her or just women in general belonged there and should be in those roles. And it's unfortunate that we sort of couldn't keep our promise to her to keep more women in those roles. Well, and we're still calling for the same thing today. Mm-hmm. You could I've seen that quote paraphrase 
from female studio executives, female filmmakers, women directors today mm-hmm. saying the same thing, urging people to recognize the value of women filmmakers. So I really hope that there are some filmmakers perhaps listening. Um, what do you think about these pioneers? Are there other female director pioneers that we didn't talk about that we should acknowledge? Um, if you are in the film industry, what kind of barriers have you faced and have they been related to your gender or ethnicity or orientation? Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And also, if you have recommendations of films directed by women, let us know. You can tweet us at Momstuff Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from Katrina about our gay best friends episode. She said that we basically left bisexuals out of the equation, even though we talked about the lesbian aspect of this whole gay best friend thing. She says, this is what people mean when they talk about bisexual erasure. A perfect example to me is in the show Buffy. When Willow meets Tara, she isn't considered bisexual. No, she's a lesbian. Her valid and loving relationship with Oz is tossed out the window. Her long crush on Xander is tossed out the window. She is with a woman now, and she is a lesbian. You are both so great at being super inclusive in all your podcasts. You recognize your privilege and work to check it before you do it. But this bothered me. I am bisexual. Some bisexuals have a preference for men or women. I've always considered myself pretty 50-50. Before my most recent relationship, my most serious relationship was with a woman. We were together almost four years, and we were engaged. I was not a lesbian in my time with her. I am not straight now because I'm with a man, just like I'm not asexual when I'm single. I just wanted to give you my insight on this so you can think about it in the future. Visibility is key to making the outliers feel normal and normalizing them to the world at large. Again, I really love the podcast and the YouTube channel. Maybe this could be a future topic. So thank you, Katrina. Appreciate the letter. Well, I've got a letter here from Elle about our gay best friend episode as well. And Elle writes, I'm a lesbian. I hate that word. And I've been out since I was 14. I'm now 28 and I've been with my wife for three years. Most lesbians irritate me. I get along with gay men and straight men way more than I do gay women. I find them generally more fun to be around and everything isn't as drab all the time. The lesbians I do know and hang out with are friends that I've had for over eight years and we've just remained close. My best friend from high school is a straight woman. She and I are just like sisters and there's never been a moment when we needed to set ground rules. I'm closer to her husband now than I am to her and she and my wife are very close. I work in web design, and I'm around straight people most of the time, and I've never had any weird experiences. I guess this is just a sign that the world is coming along, and I'm lucky to be where I am. My closest friends are guys. I get along with them on a different level. The professor you brought up in the podcast seems to have her information all wrong. I guess not all over the board, but it seems like she's had a bad experience and is lumping all of her bad memories onto everyone. And if she happens to be a lesbian, then that's exactly where we get our bad name from. I'm not exactly sure why I wrote in with my life story. I just felt like I didn't fit anywhere in this podcast. So thanks, Elle, and thanks, Katrina, for letting us know that you felt left out because we want to share your stories as well. And that goes for the Gay Best Friend podcast or any podcast where you think, huh, where am I in this story? 
because we want to hear your stories and you can send them to us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com and for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links so that you can learn more about Alice Guy Blachet, Lois Weber, and Dorothy Arzner, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.